Back in 2011, doctors removed a four-inch knife blade from the head of a Chinese man named Li Fuyan. The rusty knife blade had been in his head for four years. He didn't know it. And he had terrible, severe, painful headaches. He even at times had trouble breathing. And he tried every imaginable thing to try to to bring comfort to this painful situation he was in. And then finally, the x-ray figured it out. He had an x-ray done. And what had happened is four years earlier, he had been robbed at knife point by a, a, a robber and he had received uh, lacerations on his right jaw, but he didn't realize or know that the knife blade had broken off and was inside his head. Foreign objects don't belong in our bodies. They create pain like this man experienced. But for that matter, foreign objects also don't belong in our souls. What would happen if there was an x-ray, so to speak, of your soul. What would be uncovered? Would there be regret over past relationships? Would there be remorse over a choice you made years ago? Would there be shame over a marriage that didn't work or over a temptation you couldn't, couldn't resist or over a, a decision you made that had just reaping, uh, far-sweeping consequences? You know, guilt and shame oftentimes lie hidden under the surface. Festering, irritating, bringing pain, bringing distress, bringing despair. And sometimes it's so deep that we don't even realize what the cause is like this man who for four years endured pain because he didn't realize there was a rusty knife blade inside his head. So the question we're going to answer this morning, that Psalm 130 answers beautifully, is how does or how do you overcome the guilt and shame of your sin? Everybody has it. Everybody experiences it. How do you overcome it? First, it's understanding the weight of sin. If you look at the first three verses of this psalm, it's pretty dark. This psalmist is finding himself in the depths of distress, the depths of despair. And after you read the first two verses, you begin to ask the question, where is this coming from? Is it some sort of circumstantial trouble? Is it some sort of suffering? Where is all this distress and and the depth of pain coming from? And then verse three tells you it's coming from the guilt of sin. This psalmist has this deep guilt and this deep shame that has him in a place of utter distress and utter despair. Now, here's the question. Why is sin so weighty? Why does it produce so much shame and so much guilt? Many times it just hides deep under the surface. Why? 
Why does it bury you and leave you in this place? Well, there's, there's two reasons given in these first three verses. And, and the first is that sin alienates. It alienates. That, the word depths, when the psalmist cries out in verse one, out of the depths I cry to you, that word in the, in the scriptures over and over connotes a feeling of alienation from God. In fact, we see it in Jonah's prayer from the fish that after he disobeys God and chooses not to preach to the Ninevites and he runs away, he finds himself ultimately in the belly of a fish. What was Jonah's sin? Well, when you get to the end of the book of Jonah, you realize that it was that Jonah did not want the Ninevites forgiven and he deep down knew that that's who God was and that God would forgive them and he didn't want that. They didn't deserve it, according to Jonah. And so what we see is that at the core of Jonah's sin was pride. And his pride drove him to a, a place of deep isolation in the belly of a fish, alienated from God, alienated from others. They threw him off the ship. Listen to what he cries out, Jonah does. It's very similar to Psalm 130. Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. You see, the depths communicates this alienation from God. And what we see here is that sin is relational. Sin is relational. And sin will isolate you and alienate you from God and from others. Verse three says the same thing in a different way. Oh Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? The word stand here means to, to literally stand before someone or to approach someone. And what the psalmist is saying, Lord, if you kept a tally of my sin, if you held me accountable of my sin, I, I couldn't stand before you. It's the picture of the garden in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve right, disobey God, what was the core of Adam and Eve's sin? Same as Jonah's, it was pride. God, we don't need you. We're gonna find happiness in life apart from you. And what did that sin do? When God came into the garden, they hid, right? They hid from God. They were alienated from God. And then what happened to their marriage? Started to fracture, right? So they were alienated from God. They began to be alienated from each other, isolated. That's what sin does. It is relational, and it alienates, and it isolates. And this isn't a surprise. You know in your relationships, whether it's a friendship or marriage or siblings, or, that when you sin against someone or you hurt someone, what's it do? It fractures. It drives you apart. It moves you into isolation. And at the core of our sin is pride, and pride absolutely isolates, and it moves you apart. The second reason that sin buries you and leaves you in a place of de despair, the first is it alienates you, the second is, is you, you can't get out of it. That you can't get out of the, the devastating effects of sin on your own. And we see this in verse two, that there's no amount of self-help that can fix or get rid of the depth or despair of sin. Look at verse two. Oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. That's the psalmist saying this. I'm stuck. Right? I can't get out. 
So I'm asking for mercy. The word there means a, a pardon or a favor. He's saying, Lord, I'm stuck. I can't dig out of this despair and this distress. I can't get rid of the guilt and the shame of my sin that has me buried. And so I'm asking for mercy. I'm asking for you to do something that I cannot do myself. There's that scene in uh, Shakespeare's play Macbeth where Macbeth murders King Duncan at the urging of his wife, Lady Macbeth, so that he could claim the throne. And then there's that classic scene when the guilt of the murder catches up with Lady Macbeth and it drives her insane. And there's that scene one night where she's, she's sleepwalking in the castle and she's hallucinating and she's rubbing her hands together like this as if she's washing them. And she's saying, out damned spot, out damned spot. She's figuratively trying to rub and scrub away the blood of the murder. She can't do it. It's the same with us. We can't scrub away the guilt and shame of our sin. It's impossible. We try to in a number of different ways. We, we try to do it by explaining it away, right? By justifying our sin, by saying, God, listen, do you really expect me to do something different? The way that person treated me and spoke to me, do you really expect me to be patient and hold my tongue? <laughs> right? or, or God, given the circumstances you put me in, do you really expect me to stay pure? Do you really expect me to be honest in this work situation given the squeeze that I've been put into, right? We try to explain it away, to try to, to, try to move the guilt and the shame aside, or we try to medicate it away, pills, alcohol, whatever it may be, right? Or we try to suffer it away by paying penance. I'm feeling the weight of this, and so I'm gonna punish myself. And when I punish myself, I'm gonna feel better about myself, but it never works. Sometimes, we try to use therapy to get rid of it. Uh, Becky Pipper, she's an author and a, a, a teacher. She had an opportunity to audit this class at Harvard University. And the class was called Systems of Counseling. And the professor was sharing this, uh, this case study on, on how uh, therapy had helped this man come to understand some deep hostility and deep anger that he had towards his mother. And so after she had, the professor had shared it, Becky Pippert said to the professor, how would you have responded to, uh, to this man if he would have asked you for help to forgive his mother? And this professor said, forgiveness presupposes morality and other things that, that scientific psychology doesn't address. And then, and then the professor went on to say this, don't force your values about forgiveness onto the patient. And the rest of the students in the class, there was like this visible dismay, almost a gas of, of, of shock that the professor said this. And as he, <laughs> as he saw this, he tried to lighten it up and, and tried to use some uh, humor to get rid of the tension. And listen to what he said. If you guys are looking for a changed heart, I think you're looking in the wrong department. And she went on to say, we're all looking for a changed heart. We're all looking for forgiveness. And the point is that secular reason, secular therapy can't even get rid of the guilt and the shame of sin. That it's that pervasive, it's that weighty. So how do you overcome it? 
If that's the weight of sin, the guilt and the shame that we can't get rid of, how do you overcome it? That brings us to our second point, the meaning of forgiveness. Verse four in this Psalm takes a massive shift and it starts with the word but, which in the scriptures, when you see that, massive shift is taking place. And it's the psalmist saying, okay, so here I am, stuck in the guilt and the shame of my sin, feeling like I'm in the depths of despair. I can't get out on my own, but, but, Lord, with you, there is forgiveness. Right now he begins to speak of what the solution is. With the Lord, there is forgiveness. Now, what does this mean? What does forgiveness mean? It is so important to get this definition right because there are so many erroneous definitions of forgiveness that are, that are at the end of the day unhelpful and they don't do anything with the guilt and the shame of sin. So what is forgiveness? And we're gonna see two critical parts of it here in this Psalm, right? The first is that forgiveness is costly redemption. Look at verse eight. We pick it up in verse eight. It's spoken of otherwhere, other places, but this really picks it up in verse eight. And he will, the Lord will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. That word redeem, it means to buy. It means to ransom. It means that there's a, there's a cost, even into verse seven, plentiful redemption. The word plentiful means much or great. There's a great cost to sin. God does not and cannot just sweep sin under the carpet. He can't just brush it under the carpet or, or look the other way and pretend that it hasn't happened, right? That there's a, there's a cost to forgiveness. And, and we'll get back to definitions here. Forgiveness is not forgetting. And I hear that often. Forgiveness is not forgetting. You say, well, what about the Psalms when God says, I remember your sin no more? That's not saying God has amnesia, that he just forgets it, saying he chooses not to treat you as your sins deserve. So forgiveness is not forgetting. Let me use the example of a bank loan. Assume that a bank forgives your loan so that you no longer have to repay it. Now what's happened there? Well, the loan has not just disappeared into thin air. And look at some of our bankers and they're going, very true. Right? It doesn't just disappear into thin air, nor does the bank just suspend your payments for a little bit while the loan still sits on the books and they decide when they're gonna have you start repaying again. No, when the bank forgives your loan, that means somebody has paid the loan off. They've paid that debt. And if the bank forgives it, that means the bank has done it. That the bank has forgiven your debt. There's a cost. The cost of sin is your very life. In fact, the book of Hebrews says, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. You say, why blood? No forgiveness without a cost. What's the cost? The shedding of blood. Why blood? Because life is in the blood. Blood represents life. And so the cost of your sin is your very life. God does not brush it under the carpet. God does not turn a blind eye and pretend it didn't happen. Here's the gospel. God looks into the horror, the perversion, and the utter rebellion of your sin. And in love, he says, I am not gonna make you pay for it. My son, Jesus Christ, is gonna pay for it by spilling his own blood 
and not yours. That's forgiveness. That it's costly redemption. But it's not just that. It's not just costly redemption, but it's restored relationship. It's restored relationship. Right? Look, at, look at the second half of verse four. First half, but with you there's forgiveness. And then the answer, why? What's the purpose of forgiveness? That you may be feared. Word fear there doesn't mean to be scared of. It means respect and honor. It's a relational term. So with you there's forgiveness so that you may be approached or related to, honored, respected. Again, we're back to relationship. Verses five and six, right? Play off of that. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. You see, a watchman who sits in a building during the night shift or somewhere on shift can't wait for the morning, right? His joy is leaning into that moment when day breaks and he can be off shift. What the psalmist is saying here, that, that, that great joy for a watchman of leaning into that moment, for the psalmist, it's, but with you there is forgiveness. And what forgiveness brings is my soul leaning finding great joy in restored relationship with you. What we see here is that forgiveness is restored relationship, not escape from punishment. It's restored relationship, not escape from punishment. And you say, wait a minute, we just talked about the punishment. There's a cost. There's a life to pay. And you say, wait, that's, that's punishment. Yes, but what is the punishment? The punishment of sin is death. Well, what's death? Not phys it's physical, but spiritual. It's eternal separation from God. Even the penalty is relational. That you would be separated from eternity, for eternity from the God who loves you and made you. See, forgiveness is about restored relationship with the God who made you, not just escape from punishment. Can't tell you how many times I've had the conversation with someone who is maybe seeking Christianity, trying to figure out what is Christianity all about, who is Jesus? And as they're doing that, one of the big stumbling blocks that I see over and over is the person will say, but I know people who claim Christ, who go to church, but whose lives do not reflect that of a Christ follower. Have you all experienced that? It's, it's very common. Well, what's at the core of that? We, we have a number of words for that. Uh, we call it cheap grace, right, where you receive forgiveness and then just go live like hell, do what you want to do. Or we call it receiving Jesus as Savior, but not Lord, right? I'm going to get my forgiveness, but then I'm going to still be Lord of my life and go do what I want to do. We have a number of words for it. At the core of it is, is an understanding and teaching of forgiveness that is escaped from punishment, not restored relationship. Let me, let me try to illustrate it this way. I want you to imagine there's a woman who's lonely, who's depressed, who's troubled, maybe grew up in an abusive home. Uh, she has maxed out her credit cards. She, her home is about to be foreclosed on. She's in and out of relationships with men who have basically used her. She's in an awful place. Debt collectors are coming. And then I want you to imagine there's this millionaire who catches word of this situation. And he decides relatively anonymously I'm going to pay off her debt. And so this millionaire pays off her credit cards, 
goes ahead and just pays off the loan on her house. She doesn't really know who he is, but instantly all her debt's forgiven and she's ecstatic. No more debt collectors coming after her. She's debt free. About five years later, this woman finds herself in the same place. Maxed out credit cards, debt collectors coming after her, having been out of, in and out of several relationships in between, troubled, distressed in the same place. Let me rewind now. Let me give you another scenario. Same woman, same trouble, same debt. All of it's the same. And here's this millionaire who, who gets word of it. But this man starts to pursue her. He starts to treat her with dignity and respect like she's never been treated before by any other man. She starts to, or he starts to cherish her and protect her and honor her. And, and, and in the pursuit, they get to the place where he marries her. And of course, he pays off all her debt. Credit card debt gone, pays off the loan of her house. Uh, no more debt collectors coming after her. And she's thrilled to be debt-free. She's ecstatic. I've got no more debt. Debt collectors aren't coming after me. But she's more ecstatic about something else. That this man is pursuing her and loving her and giving her meaning. And she has a new life. And her behaviors start to change as she comes alive as the woman she's supposed to be. You see, forgiveness is not just about escape from punishment. It's about restored relationship with the God who loves you and who honors you and cherishes you and protects you and of Jesus Christ, who's called the bride of the church, who pursues us and loves us, gives us our purpose, our identity, and in relationship with him. We receive forgiveness, absolutely, and then things start to change, right? Lives, we start to transform. So how do you overcome the guilt and shame of your sin? You gotta understand the weight of it first, that you can't get out of it yourself, but then the meaning of forgiveness. It's costly redemption. There's a cost in this restored relationship. And to the third point, assurance of forgiveness or assurance that comes out of it. There's this, in the flow of this psalm from the beginning to the end, there's a massive shift. In verses one and two, you've got despair, you've got distress. And then by the time you get to verses seven and eight, the psalmist is in a completely different place. A place of great confidence and assurance and joy all of this flowing out of the forgiveness that he's received from God. And the question is, where does this assurance come from? What is this assurance based off of or the confidence based off of that flows out of forgiveness? You're gonna see first it comes from God's steadfast love. Look at verse seven. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there's steadfast love. And that answers the question, why does God forgive? Why does he choose to bear the cost for your sin? Why does he give up his own precious, treasured, and loved son? It's because of this, his steadfast love. The word steadfast in the Hebrew, it's hesed. And it makes its way all the way through the scriptures. It's the love that God has for you. It's a love that never quits. It's a love that has your best interest in mind. It's a love that's not attached to your performance. It's a love that's committed to rescuing you from the devastating effects of sin. It's a love that will never give up on you. And it's a love that is not just a characteristic that flows from God. As John says in his first letter, it's the core of who God is. That he is loving. That's who he is. Not just what he does. 
You, you know the difference between somebody who maybe commits a few acts of love towards you, at least they seem that way on the surface, and someone who actually loves you through thick and thin. Steadfast love is the latter. God loves you. He really does. He really loves you. His steadfast love pursues you. And that that's the, the, the assurance that comes out or flows out of forgiveness is that it flows out of his steadfast love. And then second, you're gonna see it's, it's, it's based on his steadfast love, but second, it's based on the finished work of Christ. Psalm starts in despair, distress, and it moves to this incredible confidence and assurance because of the certainty with which the psalmist is convinced there's forgiveness. And we see it in several places. Look at into verse six, right? More than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. One thing is true about watchmen. In the middle of the night, the morning's gonna come. In fact, one of the uh, early documents that would give commentary on the, the Jewish scriptures, it's called the Targum. It understood the watchmen to be the Levitical guards who would long for the morning sacrifices in the temple, right? The morning was coming. The sun was gonna rise. That was a certainty. And there was a certainty that there were gonna be morning sacrifices in the temple. That's how certain this psalmist is that there's gonna be forgiveness, that sins are forgiven. Then you go to verse seven, and with him is plentiful redemption. It's beautiful, plentiful. It means great. It means much. It's not speaking of a stingy forgiveness or a stingy God that's somehow gonna eke out just enough to forgive you. No, abundant, plenteous, flowing forgiveness comes from the heart of God. That's what verse seven means. And then verse eight, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. He will, it's not he might. This psalmist in the depth of sin and the depth of shame and guilt, all that he's experiencing is confident that forgiveness is certain. What's so remarkable about that verse is that the psalmist was speaking about an event in the future, right? Israel had always been promised a Messiah to come to take away their sin. That's, that's verse five, in, in, uh, in, in his word, I hope, right? The psalmist was clinging to this promise of God's word that forgiveness would come through a Messiah, but it hadn't come yet. That's what's so remarkable. How much more on this side of the cross and resurrection should we be confident of forgiveness that's been bought by Jesus Christ? See, the psalmist had full certainty looking forward to that event of cross and resurrection and we have full certainty looking back to it as having already happened. And what we see at the cross and resurrection is that Jesus Christ, if you're in Christ, and that means if you've surrendered to Christ, if you've trusted him, that if you're in Christ, your, your salvation was accomplished on the cross, not just made possible. There's a big difference there. That your salvation was actually accomplished in full. You say, well, what about repentance? Don't I have to repent and turn to Jesus? Absolutely. But your repentance doesn't pay off some portion of the debt. 
Jesus paid the debt in full on the cross. Let me go back to the bank illustration. If the bank forgives your loan so that you no longer have to repay it, that does not mean that the bank just suspended your payments for a period of time, that the loan is still kind of is on the books and that at any time they could say, oh, you got to start repaying again. Why don't you have to repay the loan? Because the loan's gone. There's no loan to repay. It's been paid in full. There's nothing left to pay. That's why you don't repay it. It's gone. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and spilled his blood, he accomplished your salvation, which means he paid the debt in full. There's not just like 1% of the debt left to be paid off by your repentance. No, he paid it in full. And when you repent and turn to Jesus, you receive this already accomplished salvation for your past, present, and future sin. Now that's good news. That's great news. That, is there not assurance in that? Jesus Christ paid it in full. The debt's gone. And yet we try to repay something that's not there. By the ways I, I, you know, we explain it away, we suffer it away, we medicate it away, we do all this stuff to get rid of our, our shame and our guilt. And God says, it's been paid. You can't pay anything more. Jesus did it all on the cross. You simply can receive it. Oh, Father, with you there is forgiveness. With you, there is freedom from guilt and shame. We thank you for Beth's story, for her courage to be able to tell it. And we recognize there's probably a number of women in this room that have had a similar experience. And maybe some who have never really dealt with it, who are still sitting in the pain and the shame of it. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would give them the courage to speak to someone, to Beth, to someone else, to talk through it. And as we, as we hear in the book of James, you call us to confess our sins to one another so that we'll be healed, confess them to you and to one another. Father, we are all, we all have, have skeletons in the closet of our past. We all have them right now even. The sin that lies deep under the surface that brings so much shame and so much guilt. Jesus, thank you that you went to the cross and that you spilled your blood to pay the debt of our sin. We are grateful. We are thankful. And we pray you would give us the courage, Holy Spirit, to turn to you, to find that forgiveness, to find that freedom that even Beth spoke about in the video. And Father, now as we sing to you, would you, would you hear these songs of praise that sing of your love, your steadfast love, that sing of your forgiveness? And that in doing so, we may be reminded of who you are. 
and we may be reminded of the forgiveness that we have in your son, Jesus Christ, who paid the debt of our sin in full. Such amazing, amazing news. Help us now to sing in response. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.